Well, we're continuing our uh, part of Matthew 22, where the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees, and now the Pharisees again, are going to take their turns trying to trip up Jesus. But I thought it prudent to give a quick reminder of where we're at. Uh, We are toward the end of Matthew's gospel. Uh, We are in the final week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, He has uh, performed his ministry as God called him to do through miracles and healing and teaching and displays of his power and his authority. He's now entered into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, declaring to everyone that he is the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. And now he's taking on Israel's leadership, the ones who have been teaching them wrongly about who God is and what God is like. So we're in Matthew 22, verses uh, 30, should be 34 to 40, I have it wrong on the screen. Uh, page number 984. And uh, my, the heading in our Bible says, The Great Commandment. Hear the word of the Lord. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and we pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to understand the significance of what it is to love you and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Give us great courage. Give us great hope that through your Spirit, through the work of your Son, we may keep this commandment, though not perfectly, that we may truly keep it in this life. We've kept it already this morning as we've sung Father, may we be moved to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we live in a society uh, that believes all you need is love. Uh, However, this society, this culture that we live in is completely and utterly confused about what love is what it looks like to love God and to love another person truly. And the reason I know that is because we live in a society that allows vulnerable young women to obtain abortions, and we say that we are loving them. We allow vulnerable people who are confused about their gender to mutilate their body parts as an act of love for them. We accept the idea that two people ought to get divorced because they have fallen out of love with each other. People sit in churches every Sunday across America singing about their love for God, but their lives look no different than the rest of the world, and they couldn't tell you hardly anything about who this God is as He's revealed Himself in Scripture. And I know that simply by the surveys that have been taken. We refuse to confront our friends and our family members who are destroying their lives with their sin. 
And we say we don't do that because we love them too much and we wouldn't want to push them away. We tell ourselves if we can just maintain a relationship with them, then they'll come around. And every single one of these is a form of hatred. So in our passage today, Jesus is going to tell us that the greatest commandment of all the commandments of God is to love God and to love our neighbor. And as we consider this passage, we're going to see that it also tells us and shows us how to love God and to love our neighbor. Here's our outline for this morning. First, we're going to set the scene. Uh, and here we're simply going to walk through this short passage and get the sense of it. Then after we do that, we're going to take a little deeper dive and we're going to look at what is love for God. And then finally, what is love for neighbor? So, setting the scene. So, so far... Uh, Jesus has withstood the attack from the Pharisees who were asking him about whether or not we should pay taxes to Caesar. That was our sermon two weeks ago. And then last week, we saw um, that he had no problem with the Sadducees and their question about whether or not we will one day rise from the dead. And now someone who we're told is a lawyer, this would be an expert in the law, is going to throw another question at Jesus uh, to try to make him look bad in front of the crowd. And so here's what we read. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So first, the Pharisees hear about how he dispatched the Sadducees, and they must have taken a little bit of delight in that because Jesus did agree with their teaching about the resurrection of the dead, Uh, but they still hadn't succeeded in knocking Jesus down in the eyes of the crowd. And so they get together again to try to come up with another plan. And then one of them, who was a lawyer, so he's a Pharisee who by trade is a lawyer, decided to ask Jesus a question. And now in our culture, there is a vast chasm between lawyers and uh, pastors and theologians. But you have to remember, in Israel, uh, somebody who was a lawyer uh, was an expert in the law, and their law came from the scriptures. So he was, he was an expert in how to understand the law and then how to apply that law uh, to their society. And his question to test Jesus is, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, the reason this is a test is because God had given ten commandments. Not one commandment. And in addition to that, the Pharisees had distilled all of the commandments in the Old Testament down to 613 commandments that every Israelite was supposed to keep. And there were debates about which one of these was the greatest commandment. But the debates were never ending because no matter what commandment you landed on and said, yes, this is the greatest one, someone could always come back and say, yeah, but what about? So if you said, you know, I think, I think do not murder. That's the greatest commandment. Because if we could just keep everybody alive, then, then we could find a way to, to work with each other. And someone would come back and say, yeah, but what about do not lie? I mean, if we're all alive, but we're lying to each other, I mean, how, how great of a society is that going to be? Okay, yeah, maybe that's the greatest commandment. So you get the feeling that they're trying to divide the crowd. Whatever command Jesus chooses as the great commandment, 
It's bound to start an argument with everybody. But in spite of the question being a test, Jesus answers it directly. And so what's interesting is most of the time when he's asked a question as a test, he responds with another question. But this time he answers it very straightforwardly. And he says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now, when Jesus says this is the first commandment, he doesn't mean that it's the first commandment that was ever given. He means it's the primary commandment. It's the great commandment in terms of importance, which is fascinating because it's not one of the Ten Commandments. You would think if this was the greatest and most important commandment, surely God would have included it in the Ten Commandments. If you'll recall, after the Israelites left Egypt, they went through the Red Sea. God parted it for them. They got to the other side. Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai. He is given at the Ten Commandments, written on stone tablets by the finger of God himself. As a way, I would think, of emphasizing how important these specific Ten Commandments are. So you would think that one of those commandments would be the greatest, but it's not. Instead, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, 5. Now, Deuteronomy is an interesting book. So this is the first five books that Moses wrote. Deuteronomy is the very last one, and it's the one, it's basically a long sermon given by Moses after the Israelites have wandered in the desert for 40 years because of their sin, and Moses gives it to them as they're on the doorstep ready to go into the promised land. And so this quote, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, that's from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Well, what's interesting about the book of Deuteronomy is right before that, in chapter 5, we get the Ten Commandments again, okay? So, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses gives the Israelites the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and then in chapter 6, we read this. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And so if you're even faintly familiar with anything about the Jewish religion, you would recognize this as the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. So it's the very first word in Hebrew of, the, of these verses. And the reason it's called the Shema is because the, the Jews decided this is something that God really wanted us to hear. So Jews now still, if they're faithful Jews, and pretty much all throughout time, have recited this verse every single day. And God gave these verses through Moses right after he gave them the Ten Commandments again, right before they were about to enter into the Promised Land. And if you look at these verses in context, flowing from chapter 5 into chapter 6, after he gives the Ten Commandments again, these verses in the Shema are really answering the question, how? How do I keep the Ten Commandments, God? And the answer God gives is, remember that the Lord your God is one. So know who he is. Know what he's like. And love him. 
Love him with your whole heart, with your whole mind, with your soul, with your strength, with everything about you. And then the words that I command you today, meaning the Ten Commandments, they shall be on your heart. Don't just do them. Love them. Cherish them. If you want to keep the Ten Commandments, you must love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And you must have the commandments written on your heart. So this is the greatest commandment because you must keep it if you're going to keep the rest. Loving God with every fiber of your being is a fundamental, necessary precondition for anyone who hopes to keep the rest of the Ten Commandments or any of God's commandments for that matter. Which is why Jesus goes on and says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. You see, the reason there is a second commandment that is like the first is because they go hand in hand. Like we said, we must love God with all our heart, soul, and mind if we're going to be able to keep God's commandments. But keeping God's commandments is also what it looks like to love our neighbor. If I worship the true God alone and have no other gods before me, that is the very best way to love my neighbor. If I keep the Sabbath holy, I'm loving my neighbor. I'm loving my fellow Christians and I'm loving a watching world. Honoring our parents, submitting to the authority God places in our life. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet. These are all how we love our neighbor. And so loving my neighbor is also what it looks like to love God. That's why Jesus says on these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. You have to love God if you're going to keep the commandments written down in the law and the prophets. And then keeping the commandments given to us through the law and the prophets is how we love our neighbor. And then loving our neighbor is what it looks like to love God. So there's this circular experience here, right? Love God, right? And okay, I got to do that in order to love my neighbor and then love my neighbor. Well, that's really how I love God. So... Now that we have the passage in front of us, we're going to dig a little deeper. Two questions. What is love for God? What is love for neighbor? But first, what is love for God? So the first thing that pops out in this passage, if you haven't noticed it already, is that God commands us to love, which is odd in our culture. Because our culture, love is entirely a feeling. And a feeling is not something that you can command someone to have, we don't think. We, we think our feelings are these unchanging things, although we know they change. But we don't change them. We just experience them. And so with that in mind, we're going to look at how Scripture describes love for God. And when we do, I want us to think, this is what I'm being commanded. Okay? And as we'll see, love for God has two components. Someone who loves God feels a certain way toward God and acts a certain way towards God. 
And so we're going to look at some verses, and as we do, keep in mind that this is what God is commanding us to feel towards Him, and this is how He is commanding us to act towards Him. Because love takes place in the heart and in action, and if you're missing the heart part, you don't have love, and if you're missing the action part, you don't have love. And we all know this is true, right? If I have no love for my spouse, and out of pure duty, I buy her flowers, and I come home and I say, here, I bought you flowers, is she going to believe that I love her? No. However, if I tell her I love her all the time, and I feel all kinds of lovey feelings towards her, but I do nothing to ever show her that I love her in concrete action, then there's no evidence, really, that I actually love her. I just like feeling loving feelings towards her. So, we're going to start with the Psalms. Okay, this is Psalm 27.4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire at His temple. So loving God with our whole heart, soul, and mind is longing to be with Him, and to inquire at his temple. It's not only longing to be in his presence, but it's a longing to know him more and deeply. That's what it means to inquire at his temple. And this longing, notice it results in action, right? I I go to the temple. I go there so I can inquire of him and learn of him and worship him and, and be in his presence. That's why Christians long to gather with other Christians for worship. Gathering together for worship is the closest thing that we can experience to what the psalmist is talking about here. Or this one. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come before God? So think about how much a deer would pant for streams of water on a hot day, and it's trying to make its way to the river. We all know that experience, right? We, we've worked out in the hot sun, and, we, and we've come, and we've found that cold glass of water, and we drank it, and we thought to ourselves, is there anything better than this? And Scripture is telling us that someone who loves God thirsts for Him, like a deep river. Or this one. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So loving God is desiring nothing on earth besides him. Even if my body gives out on me, God is my strength. He is my portion. So whatever the feeling or the experience of love for God in the heart, it's something that remains with us even if our body gives out on us, even if our heart gives out on us, which means even when we're sad and devastated, Love for God is still in the heart. It's something that remains with us when we have no strength left. 
So whatever it is, it's, it's not like what we usually think. It's not an unending, euphoric feeling of goodness and joy, although sometimes it is, and how sweet those moments are. But it's so much deeper and richer. It's, it's something that we still have, even when our flesh and our heart fail us, because he's our portion. Right? That's what we sang about this morning in, the, in those two songs. Christ is mine forevermore and the... The other one right before the sermon, I can't remember the name. Oh, I have it right here. Jesus, I my cross have taken. We, we sang about of worshiping him and following him even when our flesh and our heart were failing us. But love for God also includes action. Jesus says this very simply. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. A few verses later, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So if the person who keeps God's commandments, that's the person who really loves him, and if we love him, then, then we'll be loved by the Father, and Jesus will love us and will manifest himself to us, which means he will make himself real to us, which means a Christian is someone who loves God. Which is why John also says this in 1 John. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And finally, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And the reason they're not burdensome is because we love him, and we know that therefore our good. So the answer to the question, what is love for God, or what is it to love God with our whole heart, soul, and mind, is simple. We desire nothing but Him. Even if our flesh and heart fail us, we keep His commandments. So the person who goes to Christian concerts and who goes to church on Sunday just because they like the way it makes them feel to sing about God, but whose life looks no different than the rest of the world, because they don't even know what God's commandments are, because they know nothing about what God is like, because they've never inquired at his temple. We wonder, does that person really love God? It's possible, I would say, for sure, that they have true faith. But if they have true faith, God will not leave them there. He will discipline them and he will move them to a place where they are satisfied with him and as he truly is. Love for God is to desire nothing on earth but him. It's longing to be in his presence and to inquire at his temple. It's knowing him, keeping his commandments, even when our heart and our flesh may fail us. And this is what Jesus is commanding us to do. This is what we owe him, simply because he's given us life. So what is love for neighbor, finally? Well, to answer the question, what is love for God, we looked through Scripture to see how we are supposed to feel towards God and how we are to act towards God. But when it comes to answering the question, what is love for neighbor, Jesus actually gives us a hint right in the passage. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
There's a popular idea in our culture that claims one of our problems in life is that we just don't love ourselves. And so the saying goes, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, well, then I have to learn to love myself before I can learn to love my neighbor. If I could just learn to love myself, then I would finally be able to love my neighbor. And since I've not learned to love myself, I'm totally off the hook for loving my neighbor. But that is the exact opposite of what Jesus means here. Jesus is teaching us that we must love God in order to love our neighbor as much as we already love ourselves. Our focus should be on learning to love God. And we've flipped it, focusing ourselves back on ourselves, learning to love myself. When Jesus is like, you already love yourself. You see, when people say that we need to learn to love ourselves, the problem is not that we don't love ourselves. The problem is that we've confused not loving ourselves with being discontent with our life. We don't like the way we look. We don't like the way we feel. We don't like our circumstances, our personality, our habits, or the difficulties that we have in life. So we say, I don't love myself. And what Jesus is saying is that we focus on ourselves so much because we love ourselves. We get consumed with our looks, our wrinkles, our gray hair, our clothing, our weight. We get consumed with our feelings, our anxiety, our sadness, how uncomfortable I feel. We get consumed with our circumstances. We're afraid of losing what we have or we're envious of what others have. And all the time, the focus is on ourselves. Why? Because we love ourselves. Jesus is saying that love for your neighbor, then, is thinking about and caring about your neighbor as much as you already think about and care about yourself. And we love our neighbor then by keeping God's commandments. Paul tells us this very clearly in Romans 13. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. So loving our neighbor as much as we love ourselves means thinking about, caring about others as much as we already think about and care about ourselves, and then keeping God's commandments toward them. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't covet what belongs to your neighbor. That's what it looks like to love our neighbor. It's very simple. It's hard to do because we're sinners, but it's not a very complicated idea. But our culture has made it complicated because we've redefined love for neighbor as doing what makes our neighbor feel good instead of keeping God's commandments. When I was in college, I took a philosophy class and this uh, philosophy prof professor stood up there and was like, oh, we have a, a greater ideal than the golden rule 
And I thought, well, the golden, and I, I wasn't following Christ at the time in my life. And then I thought, well, the golden rule, well, that comes from the Bible. What could possibly be greater than the golden rule? And she says, no, we've discovered the platinum rule. And I thought, oh, well, that sounds better. It's platinum. Platinum's better than gold, right? Well, what is this platinum rule? And, it, and the platinum rule is something along the lines of, uh, do unto others as they would have you do to them. Give them what they want. Give them what they feel like they need. That's the platinum rule. And because we've redefined love as making people feel good, all of a sudden it becomes very hard to know how to love people anymore. For example, we're tempted to think that a baby born into poverty to a single parent who's addicted to drugs, we're tempted to think that maybe this baby would have been better off if it was aborted. Especially if you throw a medical problem into the mix. The other day I was taking Hope into Shriners Hospital. She was born to a single mom, addicted to drugs, and she has a medical problem. And Anne and I have labored with this medical problem for her whole life, and we probably will. But I was carrying her into Shriners Hospital the other day for a checkup, just a normal thing. And I just, and I thought to myself as I was carrying her in, like, I would do anything for this girl. There's no way her or anyone like her would be better off aborted. But if we think of love for neighbor in terms of keeping God's commandments, we can know for sure that it's not true that they'd be better off aborted or that the mom would be better off if that baby was aborted. We can know for sure that's not true because God clearly says, do not murder. And that would be murder. Therefore, absolutely, to love that little family is to encourage them to not have an abortion. Instead, we're called to love that drug-addicted single parent and love that baby by welcoming her into the world and then caring for her as best we can because true religion is caring for orphans and widows in their distress. Or this one. When a man who is transgendered wants us to call him she. Well, how do we love him? There's part of us that thinks, well, I probably should call him she because it's kind of not that big of a deal and he's already suffering so much already. The last thing in the world that I want to do is pile on more suffering into his life by, by and I know it would make him feel bad if, and reject it even if I don't call him she. And so then we get kind of, we get twisted up inside about how's the best way to love this man. But the Ten Commandments say, you shall not lie. Okay. So I would be lying then to call him a she, to, to use his preferred pronoun. Whoa. And I know that's hard. Because we know that, that he's not going to necessarily receive that well. But to love our neighbor is to keep God's commandments toward them. And so we can just rest, friends. We don't have to have any angst about the best way to love this man. 
Now, we should speak the truth in love, right? We shouldn't just get rid of all kindness and gentleness and care and concern for the agony that he's clearly in. We also should not help him covet. We should help him to not covet something that God has not granted to him. We must love him as we love ourselves. Because there's not a single one of us, if we were, if we, if, if, if sometime in the future we got caught up in a delusion, there's not a single one of you that would tell me, I would want you to play along with my delusion. Every single one of you would tell me, no, please don't do that to me. Please help me see reality. Please help me see the truth. If your friend wants a divorce because she's fallen out of love with her husband, that's really hard, right? To, to be in a relationship with someone where the fire has completely gone out. And maybe it's gone out because her husband has done nothing to stoke the flames. And it feels loving to tell her, yes, you should leave him. You don't deserve to be married to a man like that. Because that's what she wants to hear. She's clearly suffering. But God commands us to keep our vows. What God has joined together, let no man separate. And so friends, we can actually rest. Instead of trying to figure out what's the best way to love this person, and then wondering, did I do the right thing? Because if you tell her she should get divorced, I guarantee you, you'll go home and think, oh no, did I do the right thing? The only way to be able to rest and how we counsel people in situations like this as if we are helping them to keep the Ten Commandments. Remember, Jesus even commanded us to love our enemies. So if he's commanded us to love our enemies, surely we can love our spouse who is our closest neighbor. Do you see how these difficult love for neighbor problems become so much easier when we think of love for neighbor in terms of keeping God's commandments rather than making someone feel good. Now, I'm not saying this isn't hard to do. I'm saying that we are to do isn't hard to figure out. It's just hard to do. The last example I gave in my introduction was the fact that we don't comfort we don't confront each other in our sin. We refuse to confront our friends and our family members who are destroying their lives, and the reason we don't, we tell ourselves, is because we love them too much and we wouldn't want to push them away. And if I can just maintain a relationship with them, well, then they'll come around. But I, I want to ask us all this, has that worked? Has that worked? Think about the people you love who are destroying their lives, and you've said nothing. Does it work? No. They do sometimes, by God's grace, eventually come around, but it's in spite of the fact that we said nothing, and usually after years of wreckage that potentially could have been avoided. So when Jesus says we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, He's quoting Leviticus 19.18, and, and I want to actually read the verse that comes before that. 
Uh, he says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So in context here, when Jesus gives this command, it's, it's in the context of our neighbor sinning. And God says we are not to hate him. We're not to take revenge against him. We're not to hold a grudge. We're, all things we're tempted to do, by the way, if, if somebody's sinning. Instead, we are to reason frankly with him. And if we don't, we will incur sin because of him. So friends, to let our friends and loved ones go on sinning without saying a word is to hate them, according to God. And the truth is, we wouldn't want someone to let us go on sinning either. So that we keep suffering the slavery and misery of our sin. So that we suffer God's discipline because of our sin. Or maybe prove ourselves never to have known him in the first place because of our sin. Would you really want someone to not say anything to you? No. Therefore, love your neighbor as yourself. We would want to be rescued. We would want to be snatched out of the fire. So love for neighbor is keeping God's commandments, but it's also helping our neighbor to love God and keep his commandments as well. So the greatest commandment, love God with your whole heart, soul, and mind. And that's the greatest commandment because we have to keep it so that we can keep the second commandment, which is like it, which is to love our neighbor as ourselves. But here's the question, and maybe you've been asking yourself this all morning. Well, Pastor Patrick, how on earth do I do all of that? How can I love God like that? I felt it while I sang this morning. But, but boy, oh boy, it's hard for that feeling to endure. And here, here's how we must do it. First, we have to repent. We have to confess that really we hate God and our neighbor. And that it seems like we love God, but we just like how he makes us feel. And it seems like we love our neighbor because they like how we make them feel. But really, that's all hatred. And then we need God to rescue us. So friends, this, this is the ultimate place of repentance for all humanity, here. And every single one of us must be repenting of this probably every moment of every day for the rest of our lives. Because we far fall short of loving God and loving our neighbor as we are called to do. This is why it's impossible to leave here on a Sunday and just forget about God for a week because we are so sinful, we fall so short of loving God and loving our neighbor that we can't even live a moment without failing to do this. And then, remember I talked about it, it was a circle, right? We, we love God in order to love our neighbor and loving our neighbor is what it looks like to love God. Well, how do I break into that circle? How do I even get to a point where I love God? 
Well, here's the answer. We love because he first loved us. The only way we can learn to love God like this is when we discover that he is the one who loved us first. And we love him because he loved us first. And because he's loved us first, he places us into that circle. You see, by nature, we're his enemies. We're the most unlovable, undeserving beings in the world, but for some reason, God set his affection on us and decided to love us. The Bible says he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So while we're busy desiring everything in this world but him, while we could care less about a single one of his commandments, he just decided to love us. The Bible tells us that left to ourselves, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In Ephesians, Paul tells us, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So doing whatever our flesh told us to do, whatever our thoughts told us to do. So we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And the Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way, and this is why I was so confident using this language earlier. Can you love God and your neighbor perfectly? No. I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. Basically, we were hopeless. We couldn't do any good. We couldn't love God. We were dead in our sins, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind with a natural tendency to hate God and our neighbor. And our only hope is that God loved us for some reason that we'll never understand but always appreciate. Romans 5, 8, and then verse 10 says, but God shows action, his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So while we were still his enemies, while we were by nature children of wrath, hating him and hating each other, that's when he sent Christ to die for us. While we were the most unlovable, that's when God shows his love for us in action. Jesus Christ leaves heaven, comes to this earth, becomes a human, lives a perfect life, and then dies in place of sinners, saving his people from God's wrath by his death. For God so loved the world that he gave action, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He shows us his love by giving us his son, Jesus willingly comes, right? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is the message that melts our hearts. This is the message that causes, when we receive it by faith, it causes love for God to spring out of the rock, stony heart that we have by nature. And when that happens, when that happens, we are free to love our neighbor. But there's a discipleship process that must take place, right? We have to learn how to obey his commandments. We have to learn how to love God. We have to learn how to trust that when I have no feelings for God whatsoever, I can still move forward in action. And that takes time. That takes 
day in and day out, repentance and faith, repentance and faith, believing that my only hope is in Christ and that he is mine forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and the command to love you and to love our neighbor is the most humbling command because it carries with it the entire weight of all the law and the prophets. It exposes the entire weight of all of our failure. And it must drive us to Christ for forgiveness and for grace because there is nothing in us that can keep that commandment. We can only be condemned by it. And yet, when we come to you for grace, when we are given a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, we can experience, though not perfectly in this life, love for you. We can love our neighbor also, though not perfectly in this life. And so we thank you, God. And we ask that you would move us, that you would make us holy, that you would cause us to worship you and to love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.